everybody. Welcome to All There Is. I'm your host, Kelly Bargabas. On any given night in America, more than 500,000 people, more than half a million people experience homelessness. 70% of those are individuals living on their own or in the company of other homeless adults. 30% are families with children. The great majority of homeless are men or youth boys, and almost half of the population of those experiencing homelessness are unsheltered and living in situations not fit for human beings. November is Homelessness Awareness Month, and so we are going to devote the next few episodes to this topic. It is one that I have personal experience with. I had a brother who ran away from home at 16 years old and spent the next five years living on the streets. So I know what it feels like to love someone who you're, you know, you go to bed at night worried about where they are, who they're with. Do they have a place to sleep? Are they warm? Are they out in the cold? At the time we lived in the Northeast, my brother was on the streets in a Northeast city. And, you know, winter is brutal here. And I worried about him freezing to death. I worried about him being warm enough. I worried about him being hungry. I never really knew for sure if he was okay. That experience has changed me. So this topic is one I'm real. it's really important to me. I'm really passionate about it. It moves me to compassion and empathy and action. So I want to bring awareness to this topic. I want to inspire empathy in you, provoke action, and also bring power and voice to the homeless in America. Hang in there with me over these next few episodes. I'm going to be sharing some of the personal stories that I've written about in my memoir, Chasing the Merry-Go-Round, Holding on to Hope and Home When the World Moves Too Fast. And I'm also going to be sharing with you a really exciting project that my husband and I are working on. He's an artist. And we've been collaborating and working on this project for several years where we are pairing original artwork of his with short micro stories that I've written in a project that, again, is designed to do exactly what I just talked about, bring awareness, inspire empathy, provoke action, and mostly bring power and voice to the homeless in America. So if you hang in there for the next couple of episodes, I am going to be sharing more about that. I'm going to have my husband join me on the show, and we're going to talk about it and also talk about how you can help. Today, I'm going to start this series on homelessness by sharing a section called Runaway Train. I inched down the street trying to find a house number on any one of the homes with boarded-up windows that looked like they should be abandoned and condemned but actually had people living in them. Most of the homes on Munsell Street had numbers missing. This wasn't going to be easy. This was the last address I had for Bobby. It was 1993, and two years earlier he had left home at 16 years old long before 16-year-olds or anyone else had cell phones. He'd call me collect every few months and tell me where he was and what he was doing. I'd say, come home. I'll come get you. You can stay with me. You don't have to go back to school. You can get your GED, a job. Nobody's mad at you. He wouldn't say much. The phone calls were fast. I took notes while he talked. Streets, house numbers, people's names information that would be useful on my next trip to Binghamton when I needed to find him. This was also before GPS technology had replaced maps. I studied a map of Binghamton, a city in southern New York that sits near the border of Pennsylvania, and learned all the streets of the neighborhood he was usually in. 
If too much time went by between phone calls, I would drive to Binghamton and cruise Robinson Street or Lyon Street or Front Street. I would pull my car up to people on the corner and ask if they knew Robert. I didn't have to give a last name or description. I could usually find him this way. He had a way of meeting people. Wherever Bobby has lived, his neighbors knew him. I found him on Thorpe Street once, on his birthday, when he was staying with someone named Sharon. I took him to eat at Friendly's and then to Kmart for some jeans, socks, t-shirts, and other things he needed, like a toothbrush and deodorant. I pulled my car in front of a dark green three-story house. Two Doberman pinchers were chained outside the second-story window. They were pacing on top of the porch roof, which had obviously served as their toilet as well. I think this is it, I said. You're going in there? My live-in boyfriend at the time, Kevin, asked as I opened the car door. Cal, I don't think it's a good idea. He thought it was dangerous to walk up to a strange house in a strange neighborhood and start asking questions. He was probably right. Kevin readily accepted my relationship with Bobby and knew that I wouldn't stop until I found him. He had come to love Bobby too by then, and while he wasn't necessarily at ease with my plan that day, he did what he could to help me. I got out of the car and walked up the sidewalk. The dogs on the roof pulled on their collars, barking. I wondered if the chains would hold. I saw faces and windows staring at me. Neighbors in their front yards watched. The dogs barked louder and louder the closer I got to the front door. I knocked and a skinny old rat of a man answered. I'm looking for Robert, Bobby. He's my brother. He's not here. Do you know where he is, where I can find him? Nope, haven't seen him for weeks. I knocked on a few more doors, but didn't find him that day. Kevin took over driving for the ride home from Binghamton while I shoved my Soul Asylum cassette into the tape player, turned it up, and choked out the words to their hit song at the time, Runaway Train. I stared out the window at a blurred slideshow of empty fields, billboards promising a different life if you shopped here or vacationed there. Houses built before the highway came and bypassed them and left them to stand alone in their stubbornness. And I wondered if there was any hope for my brother. When the song finished, I rewound the tape and played it again. And again. The lyrics and aching melody of that song still take me back to those days of chasing and running, with Bobby always just beyond my reach. Runaway train never going back. Wrong way on a one-way track. I had to stop and catch my breath before I could sing the next line. Kevin was driving us home from Binghamton while I sobbed and sang this 1993 Soul Asylum song over and over and over again. I hadn't been able to find Bobby on this trip. Kevin had been a good sport as I told him to turn left and then right, and was patient when I looped the same few blocks for a couple of hours. I looked and looked and looked in all the places I thought he might be. I checked all the streets Bobby had mentioned on the collect phone calls we'd had every so often since he'd run away at 16 to live with George and Ronnie. He was 18 now, and he'd been gone for two years. It seemed like forever. I felt like Bobby was right there that day, within reach. He was close. I knew it. I kept expecting him to walk around the corner onto Munsell Street any minute, and I was convinced he probably showed up as soon as we turned our car north and headed home. Who knows? He could have been in that three-story dark green house with the Doberman pinchers on the roof. He could have told that skinny rat man to lie and say he hadn't seen him in weeks. 
He could have been watching me from some window in some other house in the neighborhood, waiting for me to give up on him. Bought a ticket for a runaway train, like a madman laughing at the rain. Little out of touch, little insane. Just easier than dealing with the pain. My voice was shaky, but I sang anyway. I blew my nose and pulled my map out again. I stared at the streets in the neighborhood I knew he was in. I ran my fingers along the crease and over the pen marks I had made on the map. I looked for a street I had missed. The worst part for me when Bobby ran away to live with George and Ronnie was that I never really knew where he was. He didn't last very long living with them, and they had even moved to Pennsylvania recently without him. So much for them wanting their son back. After that, Bobby roamed aimlessly around Binghamton. I never had a phone number where I could reach him. At night, when I closed my eyes on another day without him home, I would see his face, his eyes. Until that moment when sleep would rescue my mind, I imagined my teenage brother wandering the streets without enough clothes to keep him warm or a place to lay his head. I imagined him hungry. I imagined people hurting him. I knew he would talk to strangers. He would offer help to anyone who needed it and give what little money he had in his pocket to whoever asked for it. I also knew that the unfamiliar streets and people would take advantage of him, steal his money, that he would trust people he shouldn't. I knew he would be scared. I remembered that when he was a little boy, he hated to sleep alone. I also knew I wouldn't stop looking for him. I would keep driving to Binghamton. I would drive down every street and knock on as many doors as I needed to. I wouldn't give up until I found Bobby and convinced him to come back home. That's it. Thanks for tuning in today. I really appreciate your time. You can go to kellybargabas.com for more information, for past episodes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it, like it, review it. I appreciate you. Take care.